0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, one of the major discussion points during the Biden visit to Ottawa later on this week. We'll get into that for you. Hockey goalie James Reimer has refused to wear a pride-themed jersey, citing his faith. But what do the scriptures actually say? And Marvin Ryder will join us to discuss the global effort to stop the banking crisis that seems to be evolving. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, talk about, well, the ongoing concern, or the crisis as it's starting to become now, uh, about foreign interference in Canadian elections and in Canadian politics. You know, we're getting drips and drabs of information here uh, from some leaked documents and people that want to speak but not on the record. And uh, it's a pretty troubling picture about uh, what the uh, Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party specifically, uh, is trying to do. Uh, what we found out, though, more recently is, is that uh, we're not alone. Uh, This is something that they've been doing. And by the way, other uh, foreign powers have been doing in other countries as well. But there's a a, a very good op-ed piece in the National Post today that I think lays everything out for us, just uh, the way we need to, 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 I think, digest exactly what we've gone so far, and uh, what we need to do going forward. Uh, the title of the piece is uh, China's Insidious Longstanding Effort to Meddle in Canadian Affairs. Uh, it's an op-ed piece written by our next guest, uh, Christian Luckbert who is the uh, professor both Royal Military College of Canada and saint Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Christian, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Always a pleasure. It's. I've I, I loved the piece because I think it, it touches a, a lot of the, the bases that I think we need to address here. Uh, we're getting awfully wrapped up in the politics of this, you know, the, uh, you know, what the prime minister should have done, who knew what, et cetera. And that's all important stuff to be sure. But as you lay it out in the piece, uh, the, the, the imminent threat here is is the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they're doing a lot. Well, we don't know exactly what they're doing in Canada right now. But you use ex- Australia as an example of, of exactly what kind of a game plan these guys follow this is uh, this is something that I think we need to be aware of that uh, that you know this is an ongoing threat that's been happening for quite some time now
1: yeah it's part of the problem in terms of discussing this in Canada because we have less open source evidence and information available here than we have in a number of allied and partner countries. Uh, That's for a number of reasons, because we're rather late to the party in realizing what's going on, because we have institutions that aren't as adept as, for instance, the United States uh, or Australia to be able to actually identify this threat and to be able to uh, investigate it. Uh, So I think there's an important dimension to comparative to understand that what the CCP engages in Communist Party of China here that this is a broad based international effort from everything from transnational coercion uh, to interference in democratic institutions. But I think it's also important to get out of the rabbit holes that we're in, where we often see these as isolated incidents. We don't connect all the dots to understand the full spectrum across where, which we're being pressed hard politically, economically, defense cyber within our uh, within our society and we also missed the part that this dates back to the 1990s uh, in terms of open source information both in terms of investigations as well as uh, ceases reports on this phenomenon so it's not like this is new and we should be surprised and this is why it's all the more disappointing uh, that we continue to let it happen.
0: But if it's been going on for this long, and, and we are a partner with, uh, well, not just NATO, but of course the Five Eyes, uh, intelligence gathering, etc., there's supposed to be a sharing of that information Uh, Australia certainly is aware of this. And and as you mentioned in the piece here, the the government has tried to act on this uh, to certain levels of success anyway. Uh, Were we oblivious to this? Or we just thought, well, that's there. It's never going to happen here. It just seems as if we're being a little naive here about about what the Chinese are doing and, and who could be impacted by it.
1: Yeah, I think there's a sense in Canada that we're so far away from the troubles of the world that none of this could really affect us. But look, uh, there's now assessments in the United States that refer to Canada as a national security problem because they're no longer certain which institutions and which elements they can trust and what kind of intelligence might find its way uh, back to the wrong people. Uh, we recently saw a an arrest uh, within um, Hydro-Quebec, so the integrated nature of our institutions, of our economies, of our critical infrastructure uh, that are being infiltrated on the, uh, on the Canadian side. We see Canada being excluded from uh, what is arguably the most important technology-sharing deal among uh, key Western allies in the last perhaps 50 or so years that is, of course, Uh, So uh, Canada is certainly not um, uh, making a showing here as as a leader in trying to uh, get a handle on the infiltration uh, by the CCP. And of course, the CCP can operate here with impunity. I mean, there hasn't been a successful prosecution uh, that I'm aware of by the RCMP of foreign espionage, foreign interference threats uh, over the last uh, 30 or so years. So, you know, if there's no deterrent, um, why wouldn't you go after Canada? Canada is a highly networked country. It's right next door to the United States. So if you have trouble manipulating the United States, Canada is a very good uh, second best target.
0: I had an interesting discussion with the uh, Professor Stephanie Carvin from uh, Carleton University. I know you're aware of her and her, her work, uh, and she's got a background, of course, in intelligence gathering too. Uh, but she a couple of things that she mentioned yesterday that I think shocked a lot of our listeners. Uh, first of all, the fact that the U.S., as you say, are investigating Canada right now, not because they think Canadians are bad people, but they we're, we're porous here, and and you know, can you keep a secret? That seems to be the bottom line here. But the other element that she touched on was there is really no reporting system system here in ottawa for the the canadian government and especially for the prime minister we know that the u.s president gets a daily briefing of of you know what he needs or she needs to know on a daily basis she says that doesn't happen here so she says sadly it's it's possible that the prime minister never did see these briefings from from CSIS the stuff that they say they've been handing over for the last little while Uh, that that breakdown of communication is critical
1: Yes. And it's not clear why that is. Right. So one might be just benign neglect. We don't treat it as a priority. And, you know, the prime minister is necessarily always busy. And so this is not something that uh, his staff and him feel that he needs to make time for. Or is it a function of plausible deniability that if you're aware of these activities and for any number of reasons, you don't want to contain them, you don't want to have them investigated, then it's easier to say, well, if nobody told me, then I can step in front of the media and say, look, I had uh, I had no idea. And of course, you've noticed that uh, the prime minister is trying to resist uh, his staff testifying before committees so one has to wonder whether there are people who perhaps uh, know a bit more uh, than the uh, than the Prime Minister lets on and with regards to the investigations by the United States into Canada uh, as a book that's about to be released here in Canada um, is revealing these investigations actually go back to 1998 and already back then there were serious concerns um, about uh, the risk that Canada now poses to national security in the United States and so so we can't be surprised when uh, we are being uh, let uh, when, when we're not being included in key alliance security discussions and what that does is it reduces our international clout and our ability to assert our national interest because if we're not part of key collaborations with our allies, it means uh, we can't shape or we don't have uh, the power to shape the future geopolitical uh, environment and to be able to assert our influence on our interests. And so it means we're sitting on the sidelines. And the longer, of course, we delay, the more uh, we fall into disrepute.
0: I mean, if I could, Christian, swing back to what you were talking about about the, the involvement here with RCMP and CSIS, uh, and and CSIS is an information gathering organization. I mean, they they bring you know intelligence and present it, but RCMP is is the the law and order uh, aspect of of our security system here. Uh, and, and I'm hearing from a number of people right now that's saying there's a breakdown there and as you say, nobody's come, to, come convicted. I mean they've, they've certainly have been given information about some of the, uh, the, the notorious things that have been going on here from foreign governments. Uh, but uh, you mentioned in Australia that people have been brought to, to court for this and, and there's an attempt there to try to basically to protect themselves from this. Uh, the RCMP, not so much. Is, is is that because they don't see this as, as a, a a threat? Is that because they're understaffed? I mean, what's, what's the problem here? That seems to be a breakdown in the system.
1: Yeah, so that's a long-standing issue. I wrote a report on this for the McDonald laurie Institute Force 2.0 uh, on these challenges that dates back five years now. These are well-known challenges within the organization. I think one of the core issues is, of course, Uh, On the one hand, we have a national police organization where the commissioner has the largest span of control of any national police force in a democratic country in the world. So there's just way too many things going on. And 85% of the resources uh, and capabilities the organization has are being devoted to contract policing. So we have a federal police force that spends most of its time and resources doing contract provincial, territorial, uh, local, and indigenous policing. Um, There's also a serious shortfall on capability and skill sets for these highly complex investigations. Now, the RCMP can do some of these. I mean, we see this when it comes to terrorism. We have national security, uh, integrated national security enforcement teams in major cities in this country. So if the government really wanted to contain this threat, it could stand up something similar to the insets or give, for instance, foreign interference as a task to the insets where they have concentrated resources Uh, in concentrated skill sets, but uh, the government, of course, for one reason or another, has decided that uh, whatever is happening in terms of foreign interference uh, clearly doesn't meet the importance that, uh, that terrorism uh, meets in terms of a uh, political threshold in terms of importance of investigations. And look, if you look at the Winnipeg Lab uh, uh, issue mm-hmm. that now dates back three and a half years, where we still have an ongoing investigation, no charges laid, it suggests that these investigations go on forever. And if you're a law enforcement agency, the ultimate objective has to be to collect evidence that you can ultimately prosecute. So if you can't prosecute, what's the point of running an investigation from a criminal intelligence perspective?
0: Uh, as we know, let me just tie a couple of things here together. Uh, president Biden's going to be in Ottawa in just a couple of days now, and uh, I, I know that you know on the surface they're talking about well, there's trade issues. Uh, somebody's even talking about reopening the the North American uh, Trade Agreement again. But so that that's element, and that's the economy, and it's important to be sure. But I got to figure though, Christian, behind closed doors, the president uh, is going to want to put something like national security in the some of things that have gone on here in the last little while. Uh, If not at the top of the list, right near the top of the list, because there seems to be growing concern in the United States about what's happening or maybe not happening here in Canada.
1: Yeah, well, you've noticed the U.S. ambassador has been rather outspoken in recent weeks on everything from possible misrepresentation by the prime minister of negotiations regarding the border and the border agreement on migration and the U.S. the safe third country agreement with the U.S. on defense issues, on national security and intelligence issues. Uh, You know, it's starting to look like Canada is looking like a bit of a problem on the radar in Washington. And Canada has, of course, for years distinguished itself precisely by telling Washington that you don't need to worry about us. We have your back, you've got lots of problems in the world. We're not one of them. And uh, you would think that since 9-11, we had been working very hard to signal to Washington that the way we keep this border open and our economy prosperous uh, is by continuing to demonstrate that. So I think uh, the uh, concerns that we're hearing here from Washington, uh, at a minimum, are signaling that Canada is not being a good team player. You can interpret that as Canada should have its own foreign policy, and perhaps we don't shouldn't always be doing the Americans bidding. At the same time, of course, the U.S. is our most important strategic Ally uh, and so when the express u uh, s is expressing concern, uh, I think uh, it 's certainly important for us to uh, to to listen because it means it reduces our leverage in Washington, uh, and that means uh, our ability to punch above our weight uh, in the world
0: and, and you can 't look at these things in isolation though can you Christian? I mean you know we 're just talking about some of the economic concerns, and we already know that there's some talk in Washington in, in Congress. Uh, about getting tough with Canada when it comes to, you know, buy American uh, tariffs, things of this nature. Uh, if they're not happy with us from a security standpoint, they, they may manifest that frustration through economic uh, means. And, uh, and that's, that's a double whammy for us.
1: Well, this is how we re- it reduces our leverage because it means we're just the doors aren't going to be open, and people simply aren't going to have the same sort of ears for concerns that we otherwise have. If the Americans think that, look, the Canadians are just the same sort of problem that any other ally is, uh, then we're going to be treated, for instance, like European countries that don't get the type of carve outs. Um, that Canada has gotten on, uh, on by American. And of course, that would have very serious ramifications uh, for Canada in terms of Canadian prosperity. So yes, well, on the one hand, you don't want to have linkage among these issues. On the other hand, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, Canada, I think, is not meeting Washington's expectations uh, in an increasingly dangerous uh, world. And the prime minister also doesn't seem to be particularly interested in playing in that field, given that he's been happy uh, to announce uh, opting out of AUKUS. Um, so in, in, in that sense, it seems perhaps uh, the prime minister is quite happy to reduce this country to uh, um, a more negligible player in, uh, in world affairs.
0: Well, I know that's frustrated me when I saw the Prime Minister's comments about that, too. He basically just tried to characterize this as a submarine deal, and it, it's much more than that. Uh, and I think he knows that. But, I mean, you know, to minimize it like that, I guess, to try to justify their stand is, uh, again, throwing gasoline under the fire. I'll uh, direct our listeners once again. Uh, it's in the National Post today. You can go to the webpage and, and read the op-ed piece. Uh, Christian, always a pleasure to get your perspective. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. It's a real pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Have a lovely morning. You too. Christian Luprecht, uh, professor at the Royal Military College and, of course, Queen's University and a fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may be
0: aware if you're a hockey fan that uh, the National Hockey League has endeavored to, uh, well, build some bridges with the LGBTQ community uh, by uh, from time to time wearing uh, pride themed jerseys. Uh, Different teams have done this, attempted to do it anyway. And, uh, and by the way, they don't wear the jerseys during the game. They usually wear them during the, the pregame warmup uh, and take them off and auction them off oftentimes for charity uh, in situations like that. And then play the game with the, the usual team jerseys. And, and so it's been happening. What well, was supposed to happen with the uh, San Jose Sharks and uh, their goaltender, uh, James Reimer, who Toronto Maple Leaf fans may remember, he played for the Leafs a while back, uh, refused to participate in the warm up before the Saturday game against the Islanders. Uh, because of the pride-themed jersey, he did not want to wear one, and says that uh, it would be contrary to his Christian beliefs. Uh, Not the first hockey player to take a stand like this, based on on that rationale. Uh, There's an interesting piece written by our next guest about this on the uh, TVO.org webpage, uh, Why Certain NHL Players Don't Understand About Homosexuality in the Bible. Author is uh, Reverend Michael Korn. Michael, of course, is an author of uh, a number of different books, and op-ed pieces, and an Anglican cleric, and always a welcome guest on this program. Michael, good to talk with you again. I hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, very well. My pleasure to be here. We're hearing stories like this, as you pointed out in the piece, Michael, about uh, this is happening anecdotally uh, with, with other athletes, not just on the National Hockey League, uh, and invariably they just say we're not comfortable with this, uh, and, and in Reimer's case, he says, I'm choosing not to endorse something that is counter to my personal convictions, which are based on the Bible, the highest authority in life. Uh when something like this happens, uh, is, is this based on something in the Bible, or is something people have been told is in the Bible? Uh, because it's 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 a book, as you and I have talked about in the past. That's often quoted, sometimes incorrectly uh, or out of context. But it's also a book, as as you've taught me in many times in these discussions in the past, that needs interpretation from time to time.
3: It does, and these cases actually are very rare. Because in soccer, for example. It is very common now during certain pride events for the captain of the team to wear uh, a rainbow armband for the entire game. Mm -hmm. Now, we're talking about say the premiership in England, the biggest league in the world. And this is watched by tens, hundreds of millions of people, I should say. Yes, hundreds of millions. And so not the warm up for the entire game. The captain is wearing a rainbow armband. If you watch any premiership games on TV, you will see large rainbow flags in one corner. There's been a concerted attempt to uh, welcome people from the gay community into football. Uh, Stephen Fry, for example, is in charge of the Norwich City Gay Supporters Club. And I'm not aware of any particular uh, negative responses to this, certainly from players. There are Christians in the premiership, and and I'm not aware of any of them having objected. There was a case in Rugby Union, uh, someone, Israel Falau, who played for Australia, he went much further, though. He made deeply homophobic comments on Twitter, and he was at eventually banned from the Australian team. But I think, I mean, the issue really is, I don't expect hockey players, and I'm not going to pretend to be a hockey fan, and that would be misleading, but I am a sports fan. Mm -hmm. I don't expect sportsmen, sportswomen to be theologians, um, nor do I want anyone to start shouting at this guy and being nasty about him. But I do think they need to be maybe informed by someone with another opinion. I've written about this time and time again, Homosexuality, now the word wasn't coined until the 1860s. It it didn't exist in the ancient world, the word. And the word means something different to what we thought of as same-sex relations in the ancient world. It's barely mentioned in the Bible. In the Old Testament, lesbianism, for example, is never mentioned in the Old Testament. When there are prohibitions against uh, men having sex with men, it's really so as to preserve the tribe, um, uh, I don't want to say this too early in the morning, people are eating their breakfast, but it's the same reason that masturbation is condemned, because you have to procreate. You have to keep producing people because you're a small tribe up against these mighty powers. And when you look at where the prohibition is contained, there are all sorts of things that people seem to forget. Slavery, ethnic cleansing, uh, forced circumcision, selling your daughters into slavery, subjugation of women. I mean, all sorts of things. Uh, And even uh, innocuous, keeping kosher, Uh, not mixing certain cloths together. I wonder if the uniform he plays in actually has a mixture of fabrics. I bet it does. So there's there's a lot of stuff here. People talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, the Bible itself later on refers to the sin of Sodom as being lack of hospitality and haughtiness. It was only in the 11th century that the papacy turned it into being about sex. So that's not actually the issue. And Lot, who's the hero of the story, first um, practiced polygamy, by the way, but also he offers his virgin daughters to the mob instead, which is hardly family values, really. Mm-hmm. And it's barely mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus never mentions it. And people say, well, he didn't mention all sorts of things. You know, he didn't mention climate change. That's just, that's banal. It, it was a major issue. He 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 criticizes divorce, for example, which is very interesting because a number of people who are very in the Christian world who are very opposed to, to the gay community are accepting of divorce. I'm not sure how they square that one. Uh, But he doesn't mention it at all. He's very progressive and permissive on sexual issues. The only time it really comes up is a woman caught in adultery and exposes the hypocrisy of the people who accuse her. St. Paul does mention it, but if you read it, particularly if you read it in the Greek, he's not referring to two men or two women in loving, committed relationships. He's talking about straight men using young boys for sex, usually in pagan initiation rituals. He uses the word exchange in Greek. They're not gay, they're they're straight. So he's not commenting in any way on mature consenting gay people. And this handful, this handful of of references have become almost a litmus test for your Christian faith. One other thing, by the way, I should say, when people talk about Adam and Eve, in Hebrew, Adam is a gender-free word. Adam has no gender. It actually means earth creature. It doesn't mean man. So look, you can argue that the Bible does uh, prohibit homosexuality. I think that's wrong. I would certainly say, though, of all the issues, I mean, the poor are mentioned 2,000 times in the Bible. 2,000 times. If a hockey player said, I'm not going to do this because I think that the, the, the way this company is sponsoring this uh, treats uh, people without money is appalling. I think they're exploitative. You don't hear that, though, do you? And when you do, no. those athletes tend to be banned and told they, they should mind their own business. But in this case, something which is at best fringe, perhaps may be actually completely wrong. He's got it wrong. He's made a statement. And imagine you're a ki- a, a kid, uh, maybe not Toronto or Montreal. Let's say you're in rural Canada, and you know you're gay, and you haven't come out, and you love hockey, and you read about this. How would you feel? How would you react? And would it have been so terrible for him just to wear this in a warm-up? I mean, barely anyone even sees that bloody thing. Just do it, because as a Christian, you should be with people who are oppressed, who are suffering. And even if you have to bite your tongue and say, well, I'm not totally comfortable, as a follower of the Prince of Peace, a man who who roared about inclusion and, and social justice and equality and being with the fringes and the marginalized, I'm disappointed in him.
0: Well, and, and this is like what I think is, is so bothersome to so many people, is that they seem to be so strident in their opposition to this. Uh, and and as I say, you can pick a, a, a line out of the Bible and simply say that's the justification for it. But but those sorts of opinions, though, Michael, are really, I, I think, validated by, well, I hate to throw blanket crazes on everybody, but what we know politically, especially in the States and probably now here, is the Christian right, they call it, yep. Uh, yep. who would just say, these are our standards, these are our mores, and you do not in many ways shape or form stray from them uh and you know as a matter of fact i guess people don't even look for the justification of it anymore they simply say well those are the rules if i want to be a quote-unquote christian i must abide by that set of rules those standards
3: yeah um i mean welcome to my life to my twitter page and yeah (laughs) i've seen i don't mind but the, the last couple of days it's been very interesting and and when you often you just block people because they're they're so abusive and bizarre but those who engage you you respond to them and look, I, I'm not a I'm not brilliant. I'm not, I'm not a scholar or a theologian, but I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a stupid person. And I've done a lot of work and research and study over the years on all of this. And and you'll, you'll refer them to a Greek translation or what the Hebrew means or what actually happened in the context. And they simply will not listen. They'll just they'll give you another quotation completely out of context and not really understand what it means anyway. And they, they seem to be and I think a lot of it's sociological. I think it's actually masking their prejudice in theology not all of them but i I think many are like that and they they simply can't come to terms with what it is that i believe frightens them and it it is a phobia that they seem to be frightened and it's very interesting that the vast majority of abuse i receive as a boring white married straight man um is always about male homosexuals gay men it's not about women and i think it's because the these homophobic people. I think there's a certain fear. I'm not saying they're all closeted. I mean, I think that's that's too facile. But I do think that there is a certain fear of, of their own mass of their, d- d- denting their masculinity and what they have to be to to, yeah, to, to in- justify themselves as, as a man. And well, yep. there's there's a lovely story. Well, uh, we're
0: going to have to let it go here because I'm right out of time. i get got the news coming up. You know all about the broadcasting into this thing too, Michael. (laughs) I do. do. It's a fabulous piece. that can check it out uh, uh, and and get some insight into this. Always a pleasure though, Michael. Thank you so much for this today. Anytime. That's uh, Reverend Michael Korn, of course, author and uh, Anglican cleric. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the economy. Uh, We got an update on what's going to be happening. Uh, And it's been a rather tumultuous week or so, hasn't it? I mean, we had, of course, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank shut down, and then, of course, the Swiss Bank, and some concerns about banking stability, uh, not just here in Canada, but worldwide. And we're going to get into that in just a couple of seconds. Uh, First of all, though, some new numbers about inflation and about the cost of living uh, that were announced earlier this morning. Uh, Don Kelly has some details for us.
1: Statistics Canada reports the consumer price index rose 5.2% from last February. That's down from January's rate of 5.9%. It says the decline is due to a steep monthly increase in prices back in February of last year, when the global economy was shaken by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Food prices jumped 10.6% last month from a year ago. That's the seventh straight month of double-digit increases. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press.
0: All right, let's uh, get into those numbers and find out just what's going on here and what's causing those. And uh, to do so, please welcome back to the program, Marvin Ryder, professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm great, thank you, Bill. I want to talk about the bank stuff for you in a couple of minutes, uh, because I know you've got some uh, strong opinions on that. But let's talk about the numbers that came out here today. Uh, Inflation down, that's good. Uh, Cost of of groceries. When, By the way, when they say an increase of 10.6, that's not over last month. That's over some time ago. So it's been gradual, but steady growth when it comes to the prices. Uh, Is this the way the economic recovery is supposed to be looking?
2: (laughs) Well, I'm not sure there's a one-size-fits-all blueprint there, Bill. Let's start with the headline number. Okay. Overall inflation dropped from 5.9% to 5.2%. We should be cheering from the bell towers. This is moving not only in the right direction, but it's now moving quite quickly in the right direction. If we remove the most volatile elements, in fact, they quoted an inflation rate in the 4% range, now, remember, the Bank of Canada targets 1% to 3%. That's still too high, but I can see I can see 3% now from where we are. And, it, and this is February data. Also, remember, this is February data. This doesn't have March data in it. One other quick note is that the Americans released their inflation a couple of days ago, and it went in the wrong direction. In the United States, inflation went up. But Canada's inflation is going in the right direction down. So this is great news. Now, yes, uh, to every cloud, there's a silver lining and a dark lining. And food inflation, yes, still far too high, 10.6%. I think some of this is the hangover from a year ago. That's 10.6% over the last year, February to February. And, of course, in the early parts of last year, we were seeing the impact of the Russian invasion on Ukraine. I'm hoping that will start to fall out of this data in the next month or two. And food inflation too will start moving dramatically uh, in the right direction. And by the way, why if food inflation is 10.6, how can the overall one be 5.2? Because we spend our money on a lot more than just buying food. So uh, when you put it in proportion to how you spend your money, even as big as it is at 10.6%, everything else is moving in the right direction.
0: All right, let's talk about, as you say, the, the trending that's happening here, especially with the the, the inflation numbers. Uh, but you told us and a number of other economists uh, concur that look at all the stuff the Bank of Canada was doing. Well, in the Federal Reserve, I guess, south of the border, uh, it's going to take seven, eight, nine, maybe a, a 12 months before that you can really start to see the impact. It hasn't been that long. And, and we seem to be taming the beast here. Uh, are you surprised that it's happening as quickly as it has?
2: Uh, well, I am, but only because the American numbers are not going down at the same time. Usually, as you know, if, if the United States uh, uh, starts to cough, we catch the flu here north of the border. And I'm really surprised at how they're moving in different directions. I would have thought you'd seen the same reaction on both sides. But no, we took strong medicine. I mean, that, the, the year 2022 saw the biggest increase in the prime interest rate in Canada that we had ever seen. We'd never seen it gone up by 4% in one year. That's just incredible. So they did strong things last year. And I understand if you have a mortgage, you're feeling some of that pain, but we're getting the payoff. And then Bill, here's the other side of this. If this does continue to come down at the rate it's coming down, it's not inconceivable that before this year is out, We'll start to see the prime interest rate also start to come down. They won't need to leave it at that high, high, high level if inflation is coming down. So I think we all should be cheering that it does look like the Bank of Canada is doing almost the impossible, slowing the economy, bringing inflation down, avoiding a recession. It's hard to do, but so far, with a third, with a, excuse me, a quarter of the year gone, we seem to be doing it.
0: But that other number is still troubling. The fact that food prices are continuing to go up, yeah. uh, and and we're also told, of course, that you know if that's going to be the case, uh, that there could be uh, some consideration for the Bank of Canada to maybe have let's just maybe squeeze one more rate hike in there, just to try to slow down some of that that cost increasing right now. Uh, when we finish this discussion, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Tiff Macklin is going to have be on the phone and say, Marvin, what do I do? What would you advise?
2: Him? <laughs> yeah, he calls frequently, Bill. I know. The, uh, I know. The answer to your question is that uh, we have to also remember the timing of this. This is February, and generally speaking, we do see food inflation in February. It's at this time of the year that we are not growing domestic fruits and vegetables. We're importing them. Again, the Canadian dollar is lower this year than it was last year. That also helps drive the cost up. So as as I, I'm not happy about food inflation, but it's understandable, and it doesn't necessarily need a rate increase to do something about it. What we need are warmer days, sunny days, domestic production. And maybe if we could get the Canadian dollar to start going back towards 75 or 76 cents U.S., all of those things would help. So I don't think TIF is going to change his mind. The big question, however, Bill, is that tomorrow morning the Federal Reserve Board is going to meet, and I don't know what the heck they're going to do. I thought they were going to raise their interest rates one more time. But given the problems in the banking sector, what have you, I think it's quite likely that they may just freeze them for now. They'll have another chance in six to eight weeks, and then maybe that's when they'll do the next one. Uh,
0: nice segue. Let's talk about the banking system because that's still in the news too. You know, when the uh, Silicon Valley uh, story hit, we thought, okay, it's it's a one-off. It's an isolation. Uh, you know, Don't, don't get, start jumping up and down. Uh, then, of course, you get Credit Suisse, which is now in, in the dumper, and... Uh, there is some concern globally right now about the banking system. Uh, is, is, is this much ado about nothing, or is this something that we really need to start paying attention to?
2: Well, I, I'm going to say, and, and maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't be so forceful about it, but I do think it's much ado about nothing because the situations are quite different. Credit Suisse, which is a very old bank, 180-year-old bank in Switzerland, has for the better part of 15 years, 15 years gone from one scandal to another to another, They were laundering drug money for, I think it was a Romanian cocaine cartel. They helped an African uh, politician embezzle funds. They overstated uh, the value of portfolios so some executives could get uh, raises. And last year, just last year, one of their client lists were exposed through a hacker. And when you saw the names, they were sort of a who's who of nefarious individuals. Every time they've had a scandal, they've terminated five or six employees. And of course they promised to do better. And then a year later, they have another scandal and another scandal. So the, the issue here is it's more of a coincidence of timing. The Credit Suisse problem could have happened four months ago, could have happened four months from now. It really wasn't triggered at all by Silicon Valley. It's just a very sick bank. Now I will say this, I've never seen a merger of this size happen so quickly in my life. It was Friday that the shares lost uh, a big chunk of their value. The Swiss government says, we want the world to know Switzerland for chocolate, the Alps, and banking. And when one of their major banks start getting into trouble, they said, this isn't right. And so within 48 hours, not only did they convince UBS, the United Bank of S- Switzerland, to buy uh, Credit Suisse, but they said, we realize that you're buying this really as a pig in a poke. You don't really know what you're getting here. So we're going to give you a 100 billion, that's with a B, billion dollar line of credit, so that as you digest this, if you see any problems, here's some money to help you, but make it happen so that Monday morning, this is out of our eyesight. And and I, I just think it's amazing. Now, the other big move on the weekend was that all the major national banks in the world have said they're going to do a daily conference call, a daily conference call to check on the liquidity of the banking systems. <clears throat> what we're all worried about is irrationality. And suddenly, a whole lot of people turn up at a bank and say, I want my money back. I want my money back. We call that a run on a bank. No bank keeps all that cash sitting there just in case of a run. And so this is liquidity. Is there enough cash flowing through to do this? In Canada, we're doing a daily check-in with each of the major banks. And now the central banks are doing a daily check-in. Again, I think this is prudent. We don't want a problem. But also, I'll say, I'm not expecting a problem. These two bank problems are completely unrelated.
0: So, and and as you say, if there's going to be a run, and we've well, we haven't seen that happen very often, but it has happened. Uh, it's because people have lost confidence in the banking system. Is is uh, are these daily phone calls and and these get-togethers now? Is, is this a preemptive move to make sure that everybody is still confident and and they're not going to go off the deep end here?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Bill. This is just good preventive medicine. So let me give you a different example. Now we're talking right now in March of two thousand and twenty-three. But in March of 2020, these institutions did the exact same thing uh, because COVID was being declared. And nobody knew how consumers were going to react to the announcement of COVID. Conceivably, people, if they got panicked or spooked, could run to the banks, get briefcases full of cash, put them in their uh, bomb shelter or something and hunker down for the worst of it. So they did the exact same thing. And for a period of six weeks, they did the daily calls no runs happened, no liquidity problems were, were found. So they said, okay, uh, enough of that. We'll just talk once a week now rather than every day. So it's just prudent when you've got a period of unease, uncertainty, the, the potential for this kind of a run, let's, let's step up our monitoring just to make sure nothing bad happens.
0: So- All's well that ends well, then. In other words, this was a, this was a flare-up. Uh, they've reinstituted, I, I guess, the, the foundations to make sure that nothing's going to happen. Uh, but But the reaction here, I guess, that has concerned a lot of people. I'm just looking at some of the comments I've seen this morning, Marvin uh, is, is what the U S banking system and you figure, okay, there you know, is it because of the Silicon Valley situation, uh, where all of a sudden people are starting to wonder, wait, just a second, uh, you know, is, is this going to infect us as well? And, and I know the yeah. federal reserve and others have tried to reassure people right now, but, uh, is, are they looking
2: for a sign from above to say, no, you're going to be okay? <laughs> yes. Well, first let's just talk about the difference between Canada, and the United States. Uh, In our Canadian banking system, what we decided on, and I don't know how many years ago, 80, 100 years ago, is that we'd be best served by a small number of national banks. So we have our major banks. I won't name them off, but we all know who they are. And the great thing about a national bank is you diversify your risk across the country. So if there was a problem in Alberta, it doesn't cripple the bank because they've got money in Ontario and Quebec and Newfoundland, what have you. But in the United States, rather than having a small number of large banks, they've gone for a large number of regional banks. And those regional banks are tied to regional economies. So for instance, many of the regional banks in Texas are tied to the oil industry. And Silicon Valley Bank was tied to the high technology industry. Two years ago, as we were into COVID again, and we were all pivoting, that's the key word, to other ways of behaving, those Silicon Valley companies looked like they could do no wrong. Money was rolling in. Profits were doing well. All that was really good. Well, of course, what we discovered was that our pivoting was only temporary. Now that COVID is pretty much in the rearview mirror, we're going back to the way we behaved before. And every one of these big technology companies are uh, announcing problems. As you know, just about 10 days ago, Meta, that's the parent company of Facebook, announced they were laying off 10,000 employees and not filling another 5,000 jobs that they had open because they need to rejig. Amazon's been doing this. Uber's been doing this. And unfortunately, Silicon Valley Bank, because it was based right in that technology hub, they held the bonds of technology companies, they held other things. One thing I would say is management made a big strategic error in 2022. As the Federal Reserve Board was increasing interest rates south of the border, they should have changed the mix of the assets that were supporting the bank, but they kept holding on and holding on and not taking action. Finally, this year, they started to take action, but by that point the damage was done and they couldn't get themselves out of the hole. And this is there is a legitimate concern in the United States given regional banking and given some of the deregulation that happened during the Donald Trump years, could there be another one or two of them simmering, maybe about to boil over? That I can't guarantee you won't happen, but I don't think it is system-wide. It would be much more a regional-based thing. And as so far, it's now been 10 days since Silicon Valley Bank. We're not hearing any signs of another problem brewing. Uh,
0: I got about 30 seconds left. But I mean, when we see what happened with with the Meta, Facebook, et cetera, and, and Elon Elon Musk's company, uh, should we be concerned about the tech sector right now? I mean, is, is this starting to bottom out? I, I mean, because we've, we've got some rather vibrant areas, uh, you know, in this area, actually in Southern Ontario, uh, that are starting to develop. Uh, Not BlackBerry anymore, certainly, but, I mean, some, you know, companion pieces like that.
2: Uh, Are are we concerned about that in the long term? I'm not concerned in the long term. What We know that in the long term we are going to be reliant more on technology, artificial intelligence, what have you. They just thought it was going to happen a lot faster, so they ramped up here in Canada, you know, Shopify. They ramped up. They've had a couple of bad quarters now in a row because they just misread which direction we were going. But in the long term, we will get there. We'll be using more technology and what have you. It's just that we aren't going at the same pace. And when they got the pace wrong, they went over the top. So I wouldn't worry about any of this. None of this, I think, is going to cause the economy to shake and fall apart as long again as you and I remain cool headed. And that's a great thing about being Canadian. It takes a lot to rattle us. (laughs)
3: Exactly.
0: Good to know. Marvin, as always, thanks for this. Appreciate the time today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder, professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.